Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Good evening again, church. Uh, to those who asked this week on what I'm preaching on, we're still in 1 Corinthians. I think we'll be there for a while. Um, we are on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, still looking to see what Paul has to say to the church in Corinth. So if you would turn so long to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and find your place there. Uh, Dan, last week, sorry, I'm like off kilter here. It feels like I'm, that's better. <laughs> Like, not in the center. Um, Dan, last week, led us through and did an excellent job as to how Paul tells this church in Corinth, and he says, guys, get it together. You need to unite. You need to be as one. And then he goes to point out the different fan clubs that they were following, be that Peter or Paul uh, or even um, Jesus himself. Uh, And if anything, last night was anything to go by, some people definitely have their fan clubs. Um, So Dan last week did an excellent job leading us through this idea, leading us through this task of of what does it look like again to start to unite as a church in the midst of Corinthian chaos and the series that we've been going through. And so as I was preparing this message, I wondered, how would I solve this problem of conflict in the local church? And so I went where anybody goes to Google. And so entrepreneur.com has some advice as to how we can solve the conflict in the Corinthian church. I think Paul had a good look here before he wrote this letter. Um, So first thing that he does, and first thing entrepreneur.com tells us, is to embrace conflict. Paul's definitely one to embrace conflict. He's starting in chapter one, calling out these believers for what they've done, that they've supported their fan club, so he's all in on the conflict side of things. Number two, talk together. Okay, he's a little bit far to talk to them. WhatsApps weren't available in those days. Um, but he's trying to communicate. He's trying to write a letter. He's trying to resolve this issue. Third thing is to listen carefully. While Paul's received this report from Chloe and her people as to what's going on in the church, it seems as if he might have also received another letter with some questions uh, coming through. And so Paul has apparently listened to them uh, carefully. And our third, uh, how would you solve conflict? Fourth, you clarify the problem. Last week, Daniel did a good job of clarifying the problem. Paul's clarified the problem. You have these fan clubs. There's this immorality, as we're going to see as we go later on into the book, that's in the church. And so he's clarified, here's your issues. And number five, what we come to tonight, what entrepreneur.com would tell us about how to solve our problems is to find agreement. To find agreement. Entrepreneur.com says, your conversation primarily will focus on the disagreements. But resolution is possible only when you find points of agreement. You should emerge from the experience with some positives instead of all negatives. Shed light on commonalities. Share examples or instances in which you agree with the other person or can see another point of view. For example, if you disagree on new sales tactics, you might share what you liked about the other person's idea or the motivation to work harder for the team. Not too sure about that advice, but we'll see what Paul has for us tonight. We've gone through one to four, and we're going to cover step number five, finding agreement. Plot twist and spoiler alert, where they're going to find agreement is in God's foolish salvation. So we're going to read from verse 17 
uh, all the way through to verse 31, if you look in your Bibles. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We hold that as we preach and as we speak God's words, not a monologue, that it's a dialogue. Uh, and so as we come tonight uh, before God, I want to ask you just to pray for a couple of things. So let us close our eyes as we come in prayer. Church, I want to ask you tonight just to pray that God's word would be effective to you tonight, that God would speak to you, that God would have a message for your heart this evening and you'd be receptive to receive it. And then I'd like to ask you to pray for me. Pray that I would speak what God gives, that I would speak clearly and meaningfully, and that I'd be a useful instrument in God's hands this evening. Lord, Father, we are grateful for your word. Would you use me meaningfully this evening, Lord God, to, to share what you have laid upon my heart, but also what your word teaches us, God? Would your word be effective and powerful this evening? In your precious name, Lord. Amen. So tonight, as the Corinthian church, and as we strive for unity and order, we come to seek that which is common. 
And so unlike a good Baptist sermon, I come with one point, but four reasons. And so our one point for the entire evening is boast in God's foolish salvation. That that will be our singular point, is boast in God's foolish salvation. When I speak of foolish, I'm not saying that God is foolish, nor is His salvation foolish. I'm speaking about, and we'll see as this passage develops, how to the world, to everyone outside who is watching and looking in, God may appear foolish, and His means of salvation may appear foolish to us. You see, have you ever wondered why the cross to you might be this amazing thing? It is this glorious perfect picture and symbol given to us. But to an unbeliever, they might give you that questioning look and go, you want me to believe in that? Sure. Why is it that two people who grew up into the same household, the same teaching, the same family conditions, you can have one who will strive and serve after God and the cross is amazing in their eyes and to the other, they think that their sibling is just a fool. Why is it that we can have two people under the same conditions but completely different in results? Well, maybe it's because of a pastor or a specific sermon that was preached. But what about the other people that heard that sermon? What about the other people that are under that pastor? Tonight, our text seeks to answer this question. How is it that the cross to one is amazing and to the other it seems foolish? Verse 18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The entirety of our text this evening is going to contrast two separate ideas. One is the world's wisdom on the one side. On the other, we're going to have God's wisdom and God's message. And in the eyes of the world, God's wisdom and God's message seems foolish. And so, reminding ourselves of the scope of church division, what should divide us? According to verse 18, what should divide us is our approach and our view of the cross. That is what should divide us. Those who see the cross as foolish and those who see the cross as the power of God. And so, I want to give us four reasons to boast in God's apparently foolish salvation. Our first reason to boast in God's foolish salvation is salvation through God's wisdom. Salvation through God's wisdom. Each of us as men, we're pretty much experts at making our own gods and making our own means to salvation. We went in youth this past week and we were covering how we like to put ourselves back under the law, how we like to earn our way to God. And we spoke about this past week and I asked all my teenagers, which one of you put yourself back to trying to earn favor with God? And every single one of them raised their hands. We're experts at trying to find our own means of salvation, of trying to find wisdom in our own eyes. Here Paul quotes Isaiah 29 verse 14, and he says, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. What what does God do to man's wisdom? He wipes it away. He, He annuls it. He makes it completely void of any value. So much so that Paul then comes and he lays down a challenge. Paul, in the city of Corinth, there was many, many games, athletes pursuing. There was philosophers going around. And so what Paul does, he says, who wants to compete with God? 
He lays down this challenge. Verse 20 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? At this time, there would be many orators, many speakers who come to the Corinthian town, and the entire group of people would gather around them, many, many people gather around them to hear what does this wise person have to say, and is he a good speaker? Essentially, the quality of your speech would determine whether they'd love you or not. We have to remember this is a time after Plato and Aristotle. This is the time of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. They love to have their ears tickled by wisdom of the world. On the Jewish side of things, this comes after the great Jewish teacher Gamaliel. And so Paul lays down a challenge both to the Greek and to the Jew. He says, you guys, you bring your best of the best. I'll bring Jesus, I'll bring God and his gospel, and we'll see who wins. We'll see which one of you can lead to salvation. Who can save the soul? Maybe today we bring up some names such as Dawkins, Sam Harris, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Maybe Paul would ask us today, where is Buddha? Where is Nietzsche, Muhammad, or Vishnu? Where is the Dalai Lama, or Musk, or Branson? You see, not 2,000 years of history, not 400 years of enlightenment, not science, not social justice, not any wisdom of this generation has put a dent in the power of the cross. Not anything has been able to add anything to the cross. No matter how wise we seem in our own eyes, nothing can compete with God's salvation. Winston Churchill says certain It is that while men are gathering knowledge and power with ever-increasing speed, their virtues and their wisdom have not shown any noticeable improvement as the centuries have rolled. Under sufficient stress, starvation, terror, warlike passion, or even cold intellectual frenzy, the modern man we know so well will do the most terrible deeds, and his modern woman will back him up. What's the point? Despite the greatness of all the wisdom we have, despite our knowledge, despite everything we seem to boast in, man cannot even seem to solve the basic physical problems that we have. Firstly, we have not solved war. We have not solved poverty. How then do we expect to solve man's problem of his separation with God? None has succeeded, no matter what the world tries to throw at it. And so Paul, knowing the answer, doesn't wait for the competition. He doesn't wait for the speakers to come, but rather he answers with a rhetorical question. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom. God in his perfect, outstanding, amazing, awesome wisdom chooses to confound even the wisest of what we might bring to him. He chooses to go around what they might think, that they might make their own way to God. And he goes around what we even think we can understand. Chuck Swindoll says, even in our own day, many brilliant astronomers peer into space with the most powerful telescopes ever invented. Yet their intensive scouring of the universe never leads them beyond the created realm to the creator himself. On the other extreme, many scientists focus their powerful microscopes on the smallest particles of matter, seeking some kind of explanation for the order, 
the complexity and the beauty of the physical universe. Yet they also fail to find the all-powerful and all-wise orderer himself. I pray that as we consider our first point of, of boasting God's wisdom, we would be like Paul who says in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways and how inscrutable are His ways. Would we see God's awesome wisdom as we boast in His foolish salvation? So reason number one to boast is salvation through God's wisdom. In God's awesome wisdom, he chose reason number two, salvation through the foolish cross. Salvation through the foolish cross. Paul says in verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In verse 18, Paul would say that the word of the cross is folly. Verse 21, Paul preaches, Paul says, points to the foolishness of what they preach which you'll further explain in verse 23, is that they preach Christ crucified. As I sat thinking through this sermon, it's, it's a very interesting thing that Paul points to Christ crucified. I mean, if, if the Christian faith has anything going for it, we're not going to go to Jesus' death. We're going to go to his resurrection. Apologists for many years have gone to the five reasons why their resurrection can be proved, and therefore we can prove the validity of the gospel. But no, Paul does not go there. Paul goes to the cross. He goes to the cross. You see, the Greeks wanted this great narrative. They, they wanted this orator who could come to town and, and tell a great story. Or they wanted some wise logic that could confound them and, and interest them and intrigue them. But what does Paul give them? Paul gives them some Jewish guy who came from a nothing town, who was a carpenter, he said some cool stuff, was rejected by his own people, and then killed in the most shameful way possible known in the Roman Empire at the time. Yeah, I want to believe that guy. The Jew, he's waiting and he's expecting this conquering king. He's expecting this hero that's going to come into the picture and he's going to come and he's going to rescue us. He's going to achieve everything that we've desired. He's going to give us peace and he's going to make us a nation again. What does Paul give them? He gives them a dude from Bethlehem. And then Nazareth. I mean, like, he, didn't, he wasn't even born in Jerusalem. He's born out of wedlock. A guy who claims to be God, but the leaders of this people decided that he was blaspheming, and then they killed him by hanging on a tree. This is significant as we look at Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, which says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. And listen to this, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So not only is God supposedly killed, shamefully so, but God is literally cursed by God. I mean, he couldn't even save himself. What reason could there possibly be that they would believe in this message that this guy could save them? And so the Jew doesn't get his sign. The Greek doesn't get his wisdom. 
I think often we're the same today. MacArthur would say today that this is all an idea far too simple, foolish and humbling for the natural man to accept. That one man, even the Son of God, could die on a piece of wood on a nondescript hill in a nondescript part of the world and thereby determine the destiny of every person who has ever lived seems stupid. It allows no place for man's merit, man's attainment, man's understanding, or man's pride. You see, this word that Paul uses when he speaks about a fool is the word in our English where we get the word moron. To the world who doesn't understand the cross, the cross is moronic. It makes absolutely no sense. An Oxford philosopher, Sir Alfred Ayer, would say, the idea that Jesus died on a cross for our sins is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. All of this, it seems to make no sense. It seems to make absolutely no sense. Why would Paul point to the cross? But then he changes. He says, but, but to the, to the Jew and to the Greek, to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, as the Spirit comes and as the Spirit works in their hearts, the Spirit unveils their eyes. It changes this fairy tale story into a powerful message of salvation. It changes into God's supreme display of His wisdom. This message that seems so apparently ludicrous and ridiculous and absurd is the means by which God has chosen to save. That which the world would see as weak, that which the world would see as empty, that which the world would see as foolish, God says, I'm going to display my ultimate wisdom in this. You think you have your wise ways? You think you can have your intellectualism, your experientialism? You're going to make your own way to God? You cannot do better than God's foolishness. We look at the church, and even the church is confusing at times because our church marketing strategy is quite interesting. I mean, I don't know anybody who's busy putting logos of firing squads or gas chambers or electric chairs on their buildings. But here we are as the church and we put the cross as our ultimate symbol and logo. We put that down as, as this is what we hold to. This is what's going to mark us. Even at Central, we have the cross as a big picture in our logo. We take this and we go through and we look and we see that. Why is it that the cross, why is it that we look to the cross? Because that cross is everything to the person who's been saved. That cross is so much wiser than we could ever come up with. That cross is something that has worked across the entire course of history. It has changed people, old, young, wise, male, female, foolish, African, Asian, European. It is something that has made a difference in this world. Mark pointed out this morning that 3,000 were saved because of the message of the cross. A foolish foolish message, but a message that has changed men and women across the entire course of history. How is it possible, how is it that over 2,000 years we have not come up with something better? Because God's wisdom is so much better than ours, and His salvation so much better than ours. Hence, 
Something so foolish in the eyes of man becomes powerful in the hand of God. And so we boast in an instrument of death because to us it's not an instrument of death. It is the picture of life. To us it's what gives us life. It gives us hope in this world. And so it's not only salvation through the foolish cross that we boast in, but we come to our third reason to boast, and that's salvation through God's foolish choice. Salvation through God's foolish choice. I, I don't think Paul went into the, the how to be diplomatic course 101 when he reaches this passage. He's missing a bit of tact. Paul here looks and he goes, I need an example. I need an example of what it looks like for God to choose something that might seem so foolish in our eyes, but is actually good. And so he thinks, where is my exhibit A? Oh, the Corinthian church. That's who I'm going to choose. So I want you to pay attention here. 1 Corinthians 1 from verse 26. He says, For consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose you, the weak, to shame the strong. God chose you, the low, to despise and despise in the world. And God chose you, even things that are not. He basically tells the Corinthian church, some of you are things that are not. He uses this example, and I think that's got to sting a little bit for some of the congregation. But here's the point. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The, the, the theological application is, is captured in the term unconditional election. You see, as we come as a world, we want to choose people based on their intellect, based on their finances. We look up, we even raise people up based on the way they can speak or think or do things. This is what we look at as great in our eyes of the world. But none of these has nor can save. And so God chooses without any of these. God's salvation is not segmented only to the best of the best in our society. It's not segmented only to the smart or to the rich. It goes to all, including the foolish, the weak, and the common. That would be you and me. You see, not only is our salvation unconditional, but it's also as a result of God's calling. We read in that passage uh, at the start that it says, Consider your calling, brothers. And repeatedly it tells us how God chose. You see, it is God's initiative at work. It is God who starts the process. It is God's supernatural and gracious work from start to finish. We who are dead in our sin, foolish and veiled in our understanding of divine truth, we must be called by God or else we will be like everyone else seeing the cross as foolish and not as God's power unto salvation. You see, the cross will always be foolish unless we are irresistibly called to Christ. And the doctrine of election might seem crude or illogical, but we need to combine it with the doctrine of total depravity. You see, God takes the outwardly wicked, He takes the inwardly despisable, and He takes this group of people and He adopts them as His own. All equally chosen, all equally despicable, all equally washed clean and adopted into his kingdom. Our response to this mystery should not be, God, where is my role in this? Our response to this should be, God, why would you save a sinner like me? 
God, why would you take me and adopt me into your kingdom? I praise you because you have chosen me and brought me into a relationship with you. That should be our right response. Regardless of what we think our standing in the eyes of the world is, whether that's high or low, it plays no role. It is only our standing before Christ that matters. I want to bring attention again to verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, this should be encouragement both to the lowly and a rebuke to the proud. It seems the greatest foolishness of God is in choosing to save us. Choosing to let anyone be saved, let alone you and me. I look at my own example. I'm definitely not God's first and best. But God chose me. Same way He's chosen many of you and called you. And that would look foolish in the eyes of this world. And so when we think that we can boast in something else, when we think we can boast because we listen to Washer or Sproul or even Pastor Charles, I want to remind us of the song lyrics we're going to sing in a bit. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. No, God's presence and salvation are by no means a result of us. We have no claim. We have no stake. It is 100% fully God's work and God's acting. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Praise Him for that. Praise Him for that. I'm jumping the gun a little bit, so... Before I get too far ahead of myself, reason number four, to boast in God's foolish salvation, is salvation because of the Lord. Verse 30 reads, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Christopher Wright says, salvation as biblically understood is not at human disposal or a matter of human achievement. We do not own it or control it. We cannot dispense it to others, still less sell it or offer it on our own terms. We cannot destroy or threaten it for those to whom God has granted it, nor can we decide who gets to have it or not. Salvation belongs to God. It is initiated by His grace, achieved by His power, offered on His terms, secured by His promises, guaranteed by His sovereignty. God is the subject of the act of saving us. He is not the object of our attempts to gain salvation. Salvation is the result of no action of ours other than that of asking and accepting it from God. Again, I want to remind us, it is in this that we boast that God would grant us salvation at all. It's a creation that actively rejects Him, actively opposes Him, and actively seeks our own wisdom instead of His. But we're so prone to do as the Corinthians are, to lift up men, to lift up achievements, and to please ourselves instead of glorifying God and His gracious redemption. Sometimes we need to return back to that simple understanding. It's not about what I bring. It's not about what I see. It's not about what I've achieved. It's not about who I listen to. It's about glorifying God and His gracious redemption. 
And so what do we boast in as we come to boast in God's foolish salvation? We boast in salvation through God's wisdom. We boast in salvation through the foolish cross. We boast in salvation through God's foolish choice. And we boast in salvation because of the Lord. How do we then relate to this today? What is our application as we seek to boast in God's foolish salvation? Our first point of application is that we need to remember where our salvation came from. I'm often so easily discouraged and I so often feel like I easily fall short of God's standard and what God's called me to do. I need to remind myself I wasn't saved by my own work. I was saved because God called me and the cross paid the price for my sin. I need to remind myself of that. I heard of a simple phrasing that a dad does with his son. I want to repeat it because I think it's very useful. And so what this dad asks his son every night before he goes to bed is he says, does daddy love you? To which the son responds, yes. Does daddy love you because of any less because of what you have done today? To which the son responds, no. Does daddy love you any more because of what you've done today? To which the son responds, no. And then he transitions it. He says, does Jesus love you? To which the response is yes. Does Jesus love you any less because of what you've done today? No. Does Jesus love you any more because of what you've done today? No. The point being is that God saves us despite our own boasting, despite what we do in ourselves. And so therefore, why would we boast in any achievement of our own when we can boast in the Lord our God who has achieved the impossible for us? Let us boast in Him. At the same time, it's graduation season. I've seen many people posting pictures of their gowns and praise God for His faithfulness in that. But we're so prone to even boast in our own achievements. Are we prone to boast in the achievement of the cross? Do we set the cross up as, as look, world, look what God has done. Look what He's achieved. Look at Him. Look at His salvation. Do we boast in what He has done? A reminder even as we come before this that the Corinthian church was in chaos. There was church division. So what I want you to do tonight is I actually want you to look left, to look right, to look behind you. I want you to be reminded Jesus Christ died to save that person. We're so prone to put ourselves as superior. We're so, we're so prone to think that I'm better than this person or, or maybe I'm worse than this person. But, but we need to remember that, that as we are in it together, we have a common salvation. Yes, we'll do things that annoy each other. Yes, we're going to irritate each other. Yes, we're going to disagree. What is one thing that we can agree upon is that Christ has died and died for me. Not only for me, but the person next to me. So we boast not only in our own salvation, but we boast in the salvation of those we disagree with. Our last application for the evening is proclaim that which may seem foolish. Proclaim that which may seem foolish. I, I want to read you a portion of Spurgeon. Uh, when he is saved, he writes this in his autobiography. He says, the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, the very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. 
The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking, don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just, just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. A, he said in broad Essex, many of you are looking unto yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I sent to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me. Spurgeon tells, when he had managed to spin about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Spurgeon tells this preacher, all the preacher could basically say was, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. From this, the prince of preachers is saved. God impacting many through the Spurgeon. I think often we're too guilty of thinking that we are ill-equipped or unable. Our goal, our call, is to proclaim like this foolish man did when we first proclaiming it to Spurgeon, is that we, being foolish men, would proclaim the foolish message that would become sweeter than honey in the ears of those who would hear it, that God would call. We would not think ourselves so full of ourselves and think so much of ourselves to think that we are useless in sharing the gospel. No, proclaim the gospel in all its foolish splendor and pray. Plead that God would use it to save those with whom we will share it. In closing, I want to close with the EE3 question that we get to ask people. And it says, when you get to heaven and God asks you, why should I let you in? What would you say? In, in conflict counseling, there's always the beginning of what word do you start with? Do you start with I or do you start with you? So I want to ask that question to you tonight. If you had to answer that question, you're standing before God and God had to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Is your reason, God, here's what I did. Here's what I put in place. I attended church. I read my Bible. I followed these people. I discipled that person. I shared the gospel with this person. Or is your answer, you were the one who enlightened my heart. You were the one who went to the cross. You were the one who chose me. You were the one who set me before you. You were the one who redeemed me and saved me and purchased me by your blood. And you are the one who has brought me home. Would that be our proclamation at the end of days? Let us pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your salvation. I'm so grateful that, God, your wisdom is, is so much infinitely greater than ours. I'm so grateful, Lord, that we can boast in something that might seem so foolish, that might seem so empty to the eyes of this world, but that, God, to those who are called, it is power and wisdom. God, I pray tonight if there's someone in this room who does not know you, who hasn't experienced the richness of the cross, that, God, you would call them tonight that they would repent and believe in this message that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died to pay for their sins. Father, I pray that we turn away from our own boasting, that we'd, we'd turn away from thinking wise of ourselves, and that we would turn to boast 
in you and in you alone, Lord. Where our hearts be raised up towards you, God. In your precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.